0: Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld.
1: Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture.
0: Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome, everyone, to Your Cases on Hold, the JBJS podcast co-hosted by myself, Andrew Schoenfeld, and my co-host, Antonia Chen. For those who are listening for the first time, welcome, and we are to have you. This podcast, which has been running since January 2022, is now taking the place of the Legacy JBJS Issue podcast. So for those who were intent on hearing the JBJS Issue podcast, and are tuning into our Dulcet Tones, we appreciate you listening. We hope you will like and subscribe and follow us on the JVJS.org website, Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and again, subscribe so that you can get all the latest updates from Your Cases on Hold, which is now the official podcast covering all articles presented in each issue of JBJS. As our regular listeners are aware, this covers each article in the issue of JBJS. However, the commentary, the takes, the Easter eggs, all the fun stuff that you're going to get from myself and Antonia over the course of this 30-minute podcast are really our own and in some episodes and instances they're meant to be controversial mm-hmm. so please do not take offense they, they certainly do not represent the opinions of the board of trustees the editorial board or the other jbgs subsidiary products this issue of JBJS is brought to you by clinical classroom please do check that out at jbjs.org and mm-hmm. i am andrew schoenfeld as i mentioned deputy editor for Methods at JBJS, my co-host and colleague
1: antonia chen i'm uh, deputy editor of adult reconstruction the best subspecialty in the world
0: (laughs) and we are joined by a special guest host for this episode the boss of all
2: bosses (laughs) mark swankowski here i run the complaint department at JBJS and have done so for eight years and uh andrew if i could just uh make a comment regarding the transition from our traditional offering is that the video journal of orthopedics has really been an outstanding partner for the past 20 years. And they, I have the pleasure and responsibility of reviewing those before they're put up and they really do a professional job and a shout out to them. But in all reality, we went with the younger, more intelligent and more humorous with greater personality uh, individuals from our editorial board to lead forward uh, as we move on to this new phase in JBJS uh, media. So thank you, Andrew and Antonia, for doing a great job. And thank you for being the sole uh, podcast now for JBJS.
0: Thank you. And also cross-promotion here with <laughs> Ortho Joe, that you also co-host with Dr. Mo Bandari. So those who are listening, and that's coming to their ears for the first time, you definitely need to check that out as well. Without further ado, let's get into the articles for issue. We're going to start with Top of the Pile, which uh, includes two really very interesting articles, intellectually stimulating, which is of paramount, utmost importance. Uh, One is What's Important? The Surgeon Artist by Stoll, which is permanently free. And then, Does Value-Based Care Threaten Joint Arthroplasty Access for Vulnerable Patient Populations? This is by Lynn and colleagues. We're now going to move into the headlines, where each of us will cover a selected article that we felt was particularly impactful for this issue. I will go first, and my article is Three-Column Osteotomy in Adult Spinal Deformity, An Analysis of Temporal Trends in Usage and Outcomes. By Pashas and colleagues, this is a paper that is published in conjunction and under the auspices of the International Spine Study Group. I do feel it's necessary uh, for full disclosure. I am a co-author on this manuscript, but Antonia selects her articles for presentation all the time. So, like I could do that here. Uh, have some I'm calling kettle black. I see how it is. <laughs> This was a very interesting study, and I was really uh, overwhelmed to be a part of it. The International Spine Study Group has been engaged over the better part of a decade in collecting data on an extensive number of patients. And it's really a, a who's who of individuals performing complex adult spinal deformity surgery across the United States, including UCSF, NYU, HSS, University of Virginia, UT Southwestern. Leatherman, Hopkins, Duke, the Southwest Scoliosis Center, WashU and St. Louis, where a lot of these surgeries were were originally developed, UC Davis, among others. I'm not covering everybody and I'm not leaving people out intentionally, so please don't take offense. But from 2008 to 2018, they have been collecting data that is used in this paper. And there were 752 patients with adult spinal deformity, looking at the deployment of the three-colonomy as well as assessing learning curves across centers. This is a very powerful study in that regard. And they have two-year radiographic and health-related quality of life outcomes for these patients. And they stratified them into two groups by the year of surgery. Uh, what we would call the early group, they refer to as group 1, 2008 to 2013, and then group 2, 2014 to 2018. Again, 752 patients in total, 138 who underwent a three-column osteotomy. And they're really looking at temporal tier, what changed, what the this continuing group of the spine study individuals who are participating have been doing in terms of their procedural approaches. When we talk about modeling from a methodologic standpoint, the modeling is intended to simulate a universe. But really what we have here is uh, assembled many of the highest volume deformity providers in the United States. It's like the Justice League of adult deformity surgery, if you allow me that uh, concession. And over this 10-year period, the three-column osteotomy usage actually declined. So there's a more strategic deployment of three-column osteotomy as you get into the later time points. then And that includes cases of severe deformity with increases in the usage of proximal junctional failure prophylaxis. They feel this maintains a better understanding of the utility of three-column osteotomy, more strategic deployment, and greater implementation of preventive measures, which has resulted in a reduction in complications and proximal junctional failure Nefarious and significant improvements in patient-reported outcome measures. I do think it's interesting to note when you look at the demographic table, they're not significant, but in the later group, the group that had the surgeries between 2014 and 2018, the individuals are older on average, marginally more comorbidities, and lower levels of frailty. So overall, these may be challenging cases, but it does show uh, a learning curve across centers. And of course, this case is not on hold. I mean, (laughs) this case to be on hold. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't ever put your cases on Uh, Um, holdings. There's not much to to be put on hold here, of course. I mean, at the end of the day, you can point out, and it goes without saying, that these are a highly selected group of experts, some of like the headliners of every spine deformity instructional course and conference. So you can't assume that their experience is going to be translatable to anyone's experience. But again, these are surgeries that can really only be performed in very tech adept and experienced centers. And I think overall, the results are very encouraging. And this is important information to get out into the community. So thank you, Mark, for publishing it.
1: I like it. I like these actually historic approaches to looking at different, uh, how we do, what we've done. I think we could have learned a lot in joint replacements if we realized the cyclical nature of all the surgical procedures we do and seeing improvement over time. So I do like those longitudinal approaches. And I would not put this on hold either.
2: Neither would I, and I think there is real value in seeing what the true experts in the field uh, can do as the gold standard, but none of us should assume that we're we can achieve those same results and I think Andrew made that point very well, definitely not on hold.
1: I would like to know though which of those institutions or which members of the justice league that's another question for debate
0: <laughs> oh yeah, no, definitely um i I don't want to like pick favorites, yeah. <laughs>
1: Just think about it, guys. We're listening. So
2: food for there thought. there be dragons there.
1: <laughs> I like it. Well, now I'm going to go something to something inflammatory since I asked an inflammatory question. I'm going to inflammatory response in robotic arm-assisted versus conventional jig-based total need arthroplasty and the correlation with early functional outcomes result of a prospective randomized control trial. I think I win the title, the longest title of the uh, the talk today, but it's an interesting study. Um, There's a visual summary with this too, and it's free for 30 days, so no excuse to not read it. As a uh, robotic user myself, I read this with interest because I am curious to see if there's differences between robotic versus conventional. And that's a question that patients ask all the times. So a lot of times they're not as quantifiable or not, you know, solid numbers that we can hang our hat on. Length of stay has multiple different factors that relate to it. You know, pain levels, things like that. So, this is looking specifically at inflammatory um, levels. Now, this is uh, based off a previous RCT that was published last year that had um, a comparison of um, robotic versus conventional jig-based, I'll call them manual instrumentation ones. And there they looked more at the systemic levels of um, uh, int- of uh, inflammatory levels and these were interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor, ESR, CRP, lactate dehydrogenase and creatine kinase to look at the muscle levels. Here was more of a focus on the synovial fluid or the fluid that came from the drains that were left in for 24 hours. Now to be fair, most of us don't leave drains now in primary needs but I think for the sake of the study they were there to evaluate the level and potentially correlate between this serum and the synovial fluid levels. And they look at IL-6, IL-8, and tumor necrosis factor. And now we can't do those in our lab here from the synovial fluid, but they obviously did it for the sake of the study. As from the basic of the last study, they had 15 patients in each group, which is a small number. Um, they did use power from different studies saying that this a good pilot study would have 10 to 30 patients. So this did have the 30 patients that had the 15 in each group. And it's an expensive endeavor to send out all these labs is a big deal. So it's a good pilot study to get things started. Now, that said, what differentiates this study from the previous study is that this is synovial fluid, so it would have been nice to maybe indicate that in the title or someplace along the line so they can we know that it's mostly synovial fluid they're looking at, even though they did report on some of the um, serum levels as well, too. So it was interesting. Look, mostly in the short term phase. Now they did go further out and um, pulling um, the inflammatory levels, but the drain levels could only be at six hours and twenty four hours before they were pulled. And they did find lower levels of IL six in the drain fluid at six and twenty four hours, and IL eight at six hours after surgery. TNF alpha is actually were pretty similar between groups. Um, there are lower pain scores in the robotic group, and um, they did correlate these with the serum levels with pain. Um, they found that for almost all of them, except for interleukin one and between drain outputs and pain as well, basically on post-up day one and post-up day two and seven, So it was interesting that they showed all these different levels here. It's a really small study. So it's a lot to hang your hat onto these little values. Um, It would have been nice to probably see a sensitivity analysis to see if these differences um, would have changed if one or two um, individuals had different values. Uh, What I did like, though, is that in, like, say, the IL-6 and the drain, the numbers didn't overlap, right? So a lot of times with these discriminating tests, We worry about if, you know, if the range for the test was zero to five for the, you know, robotic one and the other one was one to six for the conventional, while they're statistically different, they overlap a lot. That's problematic. But if you look at the IL-1 drain levels, they're pretty far apart from another and they don't actually overlap a lot. Some overlap in the IL-6 drain at 24 hours, but there's a little overlap at the IL-6. So I thought that was a good strength of the study, but some of the weaknesses I would say the authors did know it. They saw they thought it said it was not ethical to take synovial fluid at baseline, but I thought that would be actually okay to do right after your arthrotomy or right before your arthrotomy is done at the time of surgery. So it'd be really nice to see some baseline levels. They did exclude patients that would have, likely have higher levels like rheumatoid arthritis patients or inflammatory arthritis patients, but you know, we all have different baselines. So it'd be interesting to see that as a comparator, because that could explain some things. And also they didn't take things like, Baseline alignment into account. In the previous study, they had looked at soft tissue and trauma that was done to the soft tissue. You know, for example, if a patient comes in with a 30-degree fixed valgus deformity, that's going to be a much different case than someone who has a five-degree varus deformity. Mm -hmm. So, taking the baseline uh, alignment into account and how much you know soft tissue releases work that had to be done in the knee, for example, to achieve the neutral um, alignment balance that they were aiming for in both groups would have been good because they could affect it. So, I'm not sure if this moves the needle entirely. Entirely in terms of whether or not you should or should not use a robot. It's another data point that adds to what we do, um, but it does add some data with regards to inflammation um, and whether or not inflammation correlates to things besides pain that
0: has yet to be shown. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, they're draining the fluid. It's like a cleanup on IL-6. Well, little orthopedic humor for you there. <laughs> I, I think that... Um, you know, they graded this as therapeutic level one, which is fine for the question at hand because it was a randomized controlled trial for the question at hand. But I would say for the actual translational part that goes into clinical practice, this is more hypothesis generating than it is actually confirmatory.
2: Agree. And my, my question is are these results clinically meaningful in any way, shape, or form? And it seems to me as somebody who's not good enough to do either spine surgery, Andrew, or arthroplasty, Antonio, that I've been attending a lot of conferences where people continue to move towards robotics. And I haven't seen any evidence yet that there's long-term patient benefit. Am I wrong about this?
1: No, you're not wrong. We need more time. You know, that's the hardest part to your point about long-term. And, you know, that's what people say all the time. They're like, well, if you, you know, have more accurate placement or something like that, yes, it can reduce immediate side effects, such as like dislocation, but you don't know if that's going to affect wear or outcomes you need 20, 30,
0: 40 year data to your point. So definitely not. In spine, it's not just robotics, but navigation too. Yeah. And these are incredibly expensive procedures. They add a lot more uh, in costs. Uh, and they add a lot more in disposables, which people are now um, starting to raise uh, an eye about uh, with respect to environmental uh, concerns. Yes, and yeah, are the costs justified at the end of the day? The, the jury is definitely out, but there's not material evidence to support that as it stands right now. No. All right. So <laughs> the next headline will be marks outcomes of intramedullary nailing and external ficta- fixation of open tibial fractures three- to five-year follow-up of a randomized trial by Cortez and colleagues. And there is an infographic for this for our visual learner friends.
2: Yeah, so as the uh, trauma surgeon on the panel today, I got assigned a trauma article. Surprise, surprise. Uh, I happen to uh, know this group working out of Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, uh, at the Moonville Orthopedic Institute. They've had a long-standing collaboration with UCSF. And this uh, study is a follow-up on an initial report of the one-year outcomes of patients with open tibial shaft fractures that were randomized to a a solid, statically locked, hand-reamed IM nail placed versus a uniplanar external fixator. And they had 120 patients in each group. This follow-up is from three to five years afterwards. uh, And they were able to to follow about two-thirds of these patients, which uh, being that this is a developing uh, country, it's really understandable that that this is a uh, a limitation of just the whole business of patients getting transportation back to the major treatment center. But basically, what they found is that on the health-related quality of life, there was really no statistical or clinically important difference in the results at the three to five year mark. And they also pointed out that patients who had complications, which were roughly in in each group. Unless the patients had resolution of the complications, the results were were not optimal. Those, the 75% that had good clinical results, uh, did quite well. There was a higher uh, rate of malunion and nonunion in the uh, external fixator related group, but if they went on to heal without complication, the functional results were good. So this group is to be commended not only for Conducting this very rigorous uh, randomized controlled trial with standards that are as good as any place in the world, but also to be able to follow these patients at a longer interval and report these results. And I know this group is working on other elements of management of the open tibia fractures, such as uh, vancomycin powder, et cetera. And I look forward to receiving more submissions from this excellent group. And it's a group of excellent surgeons. I've actually been there myself and They do great work. So this one is, uh, there's nothing to put on hold with this one. Uh, I think you can uh, rest assured that uh, an IM nail and an external fixator, barring complications, is going to have an equal outcome for your patient. But those treated with IM nails are probably going to have a better alignment uh, and less fracture-related complications. So there you have it, my young colleagues.
1: I would actually take it to the next level. I would not just not put this on hold. I would expedite this case. <laughs> um, it, it's a fantastic study. I mean, to get that long follow up in general is already hard in trauma patients. And for them to do that in their population of patients who people travel from all over the place to get there, I'm sure yeah. is phenomenal. So, I mean, this is top of the pile to me. <laughs>
0: I also want to uh, commend uh, the authors uh, in regard to their methodologic exactness, which I really do appreciate. A lot of times you will see in these extended randomized trials where it goes beyond the actual endpoint and they're trying to continue to follow patients in kind of a prospective observational way, but... The power for randomization or the power of the sample starts to fall away because they're losing follow-up. They still try to tell you it's like level one evidence because it naturally continues from the uh, randomized controlled trial, and, and they have appropriately graded this as level four, which I think is is an a point an important point to emphasize for those who think methodologically. Once you go beyond the terminus of the randomized controlled trial what happens after that especially if you're losing sizable numbers to uh, attrition for for whatever it may be mortality or just difficulties with follow up you cannot maintain that that level 1 evidence uh, designation yeah. um so again another uh, just a, a great group very sound in their approach and this is just uh, speaks to that yep
2: and there's more to come from this group and i know there's other groups in the developing world that are developing similar collaborations with you folks at Harvard, et cetera. So we're going to see more and more RCTs coming out of these centers where just delivering care is is the task. uh, And they are really to be commended to wanting to provide evidence that others of us can use around the world.
0: All right. Uh, So with that, we'll look forward to future submissions and uh, publications in that space in YCOH episodes of the future, but for now we're going to move into the year cases on Polderette: Pain catastrophizing influences preoperative and postoperative patient-reported outcomes in adolescent idiopathic scoliosis by Ramo et Al. This is permanently free, so no excuse. Whenever you're listening and you happen to hear us covering this, you can go in and check this one out. There's also an infographic for visual learners. This is not technically the spine work that I do, but it is spine-adjacent, given that it is an adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, so I I will go ahead and take the uh, first stab. This is a prospective cohort study of consecutive patients undergoing posterior spinal fusion for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Uh, Between 2015 and 2019, at Scottish Wright for Children in Dallas, Texas. So, a very uh, esteemed center with high volume. They were looking for patients who had pain catastrophizing, which they defined as the pain catastrophizing scale for children, abbreviated PCS, score of 75th percentile higher. So they were comparing individuals in that group to individuals who did not have that uh, PCS score. And they in total had 189 patients, of which 20 or about 11% were uh, in that pain catastrophizing group. Now, while pain in and of itself is not a uh, gold standard indication for surgery in this context, there are many patients who have these conditions and have pain. And the authors are keen to point out that preoperative pain is an established predictor of chronic postoperative pain. And prior literature has cast doubt on favorable impact of treatment on patients who have conditions or manifestations of pain catastrophizing. So it's an important area to investigate And uh, the authors are able to do this given the volume of cases they have at their hospital. So they looked at outcomes at at two years, a very reasonable uh, sound methodologic approach given the limitations in their sample. So we have that caveat and we'll come back to that in a minute. But two years, the simple findings are that the pain catastrophizing group experienced significant improvement from preoperative scores in the SRS30 domains by and large, and there was a large clinically relevant improvement in pain, and the total score was improved, but the patients continued to have lower scores than those who did not have pain catastrophizing. They tried to establish some cutoffs using the receiver operating characteristics to identify or maybe shortcut where, based on the SRS Thirty pain score at presentation. You may be able to identify patients with pain catastrophizing. I'd say that that's something that I think is kind of on hold. I'm going to pull out my Tony Romo here and be like, eh, I don't know. I don't. Eh. I had a colleague uh, email me from the last um, presentation and say that I was Romostradamus. So I think that's high praise. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but uh, if I had to propagate for this using my powers to uh, predict the future, I would say that that cutoff is probably not going to perform well at every other center operating on these types of patients. The AUC is fairly high and methodologically that can sometimes indicate that the the cohort that you're examining is a little bit too homogenous. They don't give us the ROC curves to assess the appearance and see if there are issues with that a stepwise function or something along those lines that can also raise concerns. But we really just have to go off of, this is a tough call to make with just 20 patients in your group. They did give this level two prognostic evidence as as their level of evidence. I think that's also a little bit suspect here. And I base that on the fact that while this is a prospective study, you have a very limited cohort of patients with pain catastrophizing. And that means that there might be restricted variation, both clinically and in the outcomes. It's a very small group to work with. They do recognize that and the limitations. And they also emphasize that that small sample precluded multivariable analysis. So we're not even seeing well-robust adjusted results. That would cause me to downgrade this to a level three, um, in fact. Um, But I think it does provide some good putative evidence and certainly supports doing these surgeries in patients, even with this. Pain catastrophizing condition, so I think that definitely adds value. Um, they do call for larger studies. I think you probably need multi center, given that this is already a high volume center, and they were only to get twenty uh, pain catastrophizing patients. So um, this is probably a call for a multi center work uh, to look at this in a more robust way.
1: Agree. <laughs> That's exactly the same thing. I mean, you have to do small things. I mean, it's good that pain catastrophizing is a very interesting factor. I think they've looked at multiple other fields as well, too. I know we've done that in joints and we've done that in other areas as well. But right. so it's a different patient population. You know, two years is something good to look at. They, 21 months is their lowest range. So it wasn't a full two years, but mm. still pretty good when it comes to following up with these patients. So you know, we have to be just careful of these patients. Today. So there's a clinical impact to this one as well.
2: Absolutely. It's becoming a really, really important uh, feature of, of all of our clinical research is to understand pain perception in the subjects involved. Andrew, I've heard you say a couple of times that the article is free. And if there are any residents listening who don't have a subscription to JVGS, you get it free. You just have to contact your program director. The trustees have made it available to all residents in training uh, and fellows as well. So just contact your program director if you're not, if you don't have access
0: to the journal.
1: So you have no excuse to not read it to all the residents who are That's listening. Right. To
0: Zero that. excuse. Zero <laughs> excuse. No excuse. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're going to move into our honorable mentions, which are the other scientific articles that are definitely worth your time and attention in this issue of JBJS. We have Risk Factors for Adjacent Segment Disease Following Anterior Cervical Discectomy Infusion with Plating, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Kwok et al. This comes with a commentary, so you don't have to take it from us. You can see what others think about this article as well. Sleep Disturbances and Disorders in Patients with Knee Osteoarthritis and Total Knee Arthroplasty by Bartosiek et al. SS31 as a mitochondrial protectant in the treatment of tendinopathy evaluation in a murine supraspinatus tendinopathy model by Zhang al. So some basic science for those who are wet lab benchtop interests. And then uh, genome-wide association study of adhesive capsulitis suggests significant genetic risk factors. A very interesting genetic work. I as many are aware I'm an amateur genealogist and um, aspiring geneticist. So uh, this work by Coleman colleagues also with a commentary, not my commentary, but uh, someone uh, more erudite in the field commenting uh, is also worth your read. That wraps up this JBJS issue. Again, we really appreciate those who are expecting to hear the standard JBJS issue podcast. We hope you enjoyed this new format for our regular Your Case is on Hold listeners. You know your case is still on hold, so you can check out some back issues if you're uh, coming to this for the first time.
2: And again, a shout out to VJO for 20 years of collaboration, but we have the younger, better model now.
0: We'll just go
1: with younger. How's that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that you can't um, if you like Easter eggs, if you like Tony Romo, if you like entertainment and pop culture with a side dose of fashion advice, well, uh, then Walmart, you definitely six, need to come please. back. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Definitely the fashion advice. That's what I need yeah. to. So we'll work on that one. <laughs> if not, check out the video version of our podcast because Andrew Schoenfeld is always on point with his selections, Mark is doling it out with the tie. So I'm I'm the I'm the least <laughs> dressed up on this one, but it's a fun group. It's good banter and it's always a good time. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for having the
2: old guy on. Uh,
1: it
0: was great. It was great.
1: You're the best. Thanks a lot, everyone.